Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I'm your host, and I am honored once again by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Here at the Business Creators Radio Show, we invite you to a mastermind conversation. And where do we have these mastermind conversations? They occur in coffee shops, networking seminar luncheons, cigar shops, cafes, parks, anywhere where people hang out. So occasionally you may hear birds chirping in the background, a little bit of ambient conversation. We're a from the field type podcast, although today we are actually broadcasting from my sumptuous living room here in Las Vegas, Nevada, since it's a little unseasonably cold outside. This is not what I came to Las Vegas for, but as I like to say, you're rarely going to find anything that's perfect. But when you're getting more of what you need and want and less of what you don't need and don't want, you're headed in the right direction. With that sentiment, I invite you to take out a pad of paper and two pens and be prepared to capture those aha moments that will naturally arise as you discover what's about to be shown to you right now. We have a very interesting guest, somebody who I have been chomping at the bit to speak with for a while. His name is Jim Rowe. I'll tell you just a little bit about him. He's an author, a marketing veteran of 45 years. He started in market research after receiving his BS in marketing from Fairfield University, Connecticut. Uh, He's held client agency positions, including brand manager at Coke, VP marketing at Cuddy Shark, president of promotion promotion at Intermark Divisions, Sachi Howard Marlboro Group, plus 30 years as an owner of Manhattan Marketing Ensemble, and currently Jim Rowe Marketing. And he has certainly got a story for you, and we're going to invite him to tell it. But for now, let's bring him in. Jim Rowe, come on in. The weather's fine. (laughs) Well, that's some introduction. Thank you, Adam. All right. So... Where we like to begin here is I read off the basic statistics of your official bio and just off that list of titles, I am so impressed by it. And I recognize that I may not be qualified to be in your presence. And this is oh, stop. <laughs> so I, I, I say that to all the guests no, yeah, no, 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 no. and our listeners know that. Anyway, uh, what we'd like to do here is first turn it over to you as the guest for a bit and tell us a bit in your own words about your journey and what's brought you here serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Okay. Well, thank you for the intro and thank you for having me. I, um, I guess I would say that I am a marketing guy. I started my college days, uh, the first semester as a math major and uh, partied too hard. And so I called up my dad and he said, uh, I think you should be in marketing. And so since then, uh, January of, I don't know, 73 or something, that's where I've been. And um, right. I, I got into research. I, I interned there, which is always good. In those days, there weren't a lot of internships and I, at a supplier. And then I uh, moved over to the client side. And, you know, the great thing about math, I'm good at numbers and research is it gives you that foundation to say, well, prove it to me. And then um, I wanted to get into brand management because I love the concept, the whole holistic perspective of uh, marketing and brand management. I had the good fortune to meet my boss uh, and mentor back in the early days when I was just a kid. And uh, she has gone on, and I'll tell you later, she's become the hero of my book here. Uh, We still stay in touch. And I, you know, I worked on the client side um, and I be, I did go down to Coke three years there. Big company, big brand. Everybody was the brand manager in Coke in the building. So it was an interesting experience. But then I moved back and worked in the wine spirit business and became VP of marketing and then switched over to a Sachi division. And what I found is I kept 
learning as time went on that I'm pretty good at, you know, I love strategic branding and marketing, but I'm pretty good at communicating. And I think that's because we in marketing, we get trained that way. Um, right. You get trained to think about who is the audience? What are you trying to accomplish? Let's think through how we're going to get them to do what we want to do. And in particular, my first boss, Connie Humphrey, she was um, trained at Colgate, real brilliant woman. And, uh, you know, the, the consumer packaged goods led by P&G, that industry, they kind of created brand management. And it's really a disciplined approach to problem solving. So you grow up in that environment. And over the years, eventually, uh, 1990, we started a firm, three of us, uh, we left Saatchi. And, um, you know, over 30, uh, 27 years, we had 36 people. I, I brought in over my career, including general marketing, 27 clients. Um, but you also had to teach your employees to communicate and do things so that you can move on to the more senior level or to another client. And what I noticed over the, in the early 2000s, I started noticing that the young uh, graduates that we hired every year out of school were not that great at writing or problem solving, basic critical thinking. So I, I started this concept of this book back then. And what, what was the inspiration was a book you've probably heard of called Who Moved My Cheese? And it was a yeah. fable. And I thought it was pretty cool. I thought someday I'm going to write a book like that. And when I retired from MME and uh, decided to try and start an e-commerce business, so I've been an entrepreneur for a long time, um, I also started working on the book. And I ended up um, focusing a lot of my time now. Now on this book, uh, which I only launched three weeks ago. And uh, so it's, it's you're one of the first, uh, the second podcast I've been meeting with. And the beauty of it is, and what I've learned is that the more back in 2016 or so after I retired, I started thinking it's not just me. I found research from big studies and you've got 40, 50 to 75% of managers that are working today saying their recent grads can't problem solve and they can't communicate, particularly in writing. That's a big problem. The, yeah. second, the second part of that problem is in those same studies, they ask the, you know, how likely to the students, how proficient do you believe you are? 80% of the students said they were proficient. So that, that is the thing called the skills gap. It's a big, you know, it's a big gap between with the managers. And I'm sure you've talked to people and, and I'm not being down on this, this generation. It's just that something is wrong. And so the, the current solutions aren't really working. I talk to people about it all the time. Everybody agrees, but you know, uh, Adam, it's kind of under the radar. Um, there really aren't that many, you know, there's a few studies here and there, but it's not like this is something we need to fix. And it's not just the colleges. This all starts before, um, you know, really there's a study back in 2011 called the Nation's Report Card. And they, they went through the points of, um, you know, in writing, uh, there was a four point scale and they rated how many people were proficient in eighth grade and 12th grade. 73% were not proficient. 73% of high school graduates were not proficient in writing. And it, but then they did a freshman year and they were 60%. But even by senior year, they still said 40% of, of, of graduates of college were not proficient writers. So um, it's a big deal. And the impact on this is, is pretty amazing, really. That, you know, a recent study said that the U.S. spends about, uh, corporations spend about, uh, have lost about $400 billion in costs directly attributed to poor communication. And so that's just the cost, that's the money, but the people side of things is, you know, think about the stress on the organization and on the people and the morale and the mistakes that are made and the reputations that are ruined. This is a big deal. So now what are corporations doing? They're spending $3 billion in trying to train recent grads and frankly, all executives how to write better by thinking better. So that's kind of what I did. And so I decided to come up with this book and I didn't, you know, I've read, uh, I've, I've downloaded the sick, the top selling business communication textbook. It's enormous. It's incredibly smart. And I didn't disagree with anything. I didn't read every page, wow. but I flipped through it. But you know what? It's 600 pages of excruciating detail. You can't turn to a new person, hand them this textbook and say, hey, read this and, and, and you're going to communicate better. So that doesn't work. And then I downloaded and read the top six or seven business writing textbooks. And they're all by smart people. But you know what? 
they're not targeting the, this group. They're targeting the people that are already pretty pretty good and they want to refine their skills. And, and frankly, they're a little, they're business books. They're a little dull. So I thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something different. So I created um, Get Your Ducks in a Row. And it is indeed a, uh, a fable. And it's a story about ducks in business. And the hero of the book is uh, my, my old boss, Connie Humphrey, but in the book, she's Connie Duckfree. And I take them through a simple, you know, in uh, with, with pictures of illustrations uh, in about a hundred pages, a little over a hundred pages. And in an hour, you get the basic concept of a, um, let's say it's a marketing or a creative brief. It's let's take them through the logical steps that you would learn in marketing and put it in instead of, I mean, I could have made this in some respects. I could have made it a blog post or I could have made it a tweet, but the idea is to give them a character around why this happens and why everything makes sense. So I told it in a story and most people have been responding pretty well. Uh, One or two said to me, it's, it's very simplistic. And my point is, that's the point. It's supposed to be simplistic. You need to tell somebody, let's get going. So I think it's a practical teaching tool. And I wrote so many things about it. Um, that, you know, I wrote the story. And then I said, well, I got all these other ideas I want to put into it. So I started writing an appendix. And the appendix became so big, I created book number two. And what the, the book number two is about is more the holistic idea of um, you know, marketing and uh, uh, running a business and the cycle of business. So I created, and it was like trying to figure out how to do the chapters. So I ended up creating an acronym called the Adapter Method, and that's book right. number two is learn the Adapter Method. And that stands for analyze, deduce, um, author, perform, tackle, evaluate, and refine. So I've been wow talking, talking too fast, perhaps, but yeah, I get, yeah, I, I get excited about it. I apologize. Well, no, no, there's nothing to apologize for. I'm just saying. Uh, I was saying, just for the sake of the ebb and flow, it's about time that we dive into this a little bit. I yeah. wanted to highlight a couple things, uh, one of which is when you mentioned the pay scale study, 60% of managers say grads lack, lack problem-solving skills, 40% say they can't write, and yet 80% of grads say they're proficient in both. Uh, you know what immediately jumped out of me when you shared that is uh, being told how I feel by people who think that they can read my mind because of their position on an organizational chart. Interesting. In other words, you're, you're, if you were say, looking at it from the standpoint of a grad, you, were, you would be offended by that. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, 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 and when people perceive this, eventually it manifests itself in a way that every organization should actually be afraid of. You get people, particularly recent grads or people where this is their first or second quote unquote real job for lack of a better phrase. And, uh, there in many cases, these are folks with something to prove and the energy and willingness to prove it, which can be very good for your organization. You stifle them by telling them what they're telling them, what their skills are versus assessing what their skills are, telling them what they're thinking, and then overriding them when they tell you what's actually on their mind and evaluating their ability to speak factual information or tell truth based on their position on an organizational chart. And what eventually happens is they will go from being gung-ho and ready to go above and beyond and innovate to the point where if you open up their drawer, you'll notice a printed out copy of their job description. It'll have coffee rings, bent corners, little notes on it. It'll be wrinkled. You can tell it's looked at every day. Because at this point, they've gotten to the level where they're doing everything that a document that you're le- is the employer legally bound to follow. They're making sure that they're fulfilling all of those things. And if anything comes across their transom that is not within those bullet points, they ain't doing it no more. That's one step. That's one step away from them going to your competition, and they probably at this point are already speaking with your competition. <laughs> well, you may be right. I think a big part of it is the ability and how it's positioned. You know, what's what's interesting is I'm not necessarily targeting the um, and by marketing. I'm not necessarily targeting these recent grads. I think right. it has to be positioned correctly. And, and, and I think, you know, one of, you know, one is the, the, 
the books themselves. But the biggest <laughs> thing that has to happen is I think they, there has to be a change in the culture of the organization. So how, how to handle that and how to present that, I think, is incredibly important because you don't want to annoy them. All I can tell you is, having done this over the years and sat with young people, I know that by providing them this kind of outline format, it um, it really helps them. So I think if we can demonstrate that it is, uh, you know, here's something, this is our culture. We find communication very important because things get can get screwed up and people can be upset. So if it's positioned properly, hopefully that um, that antagonistic sort of attitude uh, could be uh, alleviated. I think so as well. And I also understand your who your actual target market may be for what you are sharing with the world and who your clients may be. I, I was adding another element to that view. Uh, now, what I thought now, what I really will see here is, and I don't want to just jump straight to let's look at cultural and generational differences, because I think that's just sort of a shortcut here. But first of all, let's look at a bit about Get Your Ducks in a Row, your book. And by the way, for our listeners, Row is spelled R-O-W-E, just like Jim's last name. So that way, when you're looking it up on Amazon right now to buy it, uh, first of all, uh, you have mentioned that it is actually a fable. So why did you approach this book with a fable mentality and write it more like a story? And yes, we all are familiar with Who Moved My Chase. Fine. Um, I, I think it's... it's um... What I have learned, and I think a lot of people talk about it now in marketing, is that people learn better from stories. So yeah. you're, it's easier to read. You, you, you know, you can read it. I think you can retain it um, and even replicate it. You know, take, put, employ it, put it to use. Um, I, so my my goal as a marketing guy, you always start with what's the objective. The first objective is to you want to try and get them to to read it and and use it. So I just found, and I. I think part of it is, is I got, uh, and, uh, you know, when I read these other business books, they're all smart by smart people, even the Harvard business. I mean, there's all good stuff, but it's a little tough to get through when you walk away and like, you go, what do I have? And they all kind of merge together. I'm giving them 10 simple steps in a story that they can, you know, walk away with. So I think the, the, the benefit of a story, and frankly, I've had one, one of my best friends say to me, um, I think it's juvenile. Well, it's going to not be for him. Uh, he's he's a brilliant retired, uh, you know, law review lawyer, but uh, he's not who my target is. Right. This is why when I created my book, Groundhog Days: An Event, Not a Business Strategy, it's in a storytelling format. What I essentially did was take about eighty or ninety things that I've encountered and created stories around them using a cast of characters that I developed, sort of like I was creating a novella or a short fiction novel. That's great. And I love when people read back the stories to me. Yes. I mean, well, hey, that... a lot of us have been in college, and we remember we had our assigned reading that we had to have Chapter 13 read by Tuesday's <laughs> class. <laughs> yes. There might be a pop quiz on it. And, you know, you open up the book, and the first thing you do is you, you, see, you find Chapter 13. You say, okay, so Chapter 13 is 31 pages. And then you flip through again. Oh, there are no subheaders. <laughs> there are no pictures. This is going to be a long there, night before I go out. There, there are no pictures. Yeah. The fonts are all nine point times New Roman. Double yuck. Yeah. And yeah. the average size of a paragraph is a page and a half. Yeah. I'm going to have to read this. Yeah. And it's not. So you, read, you read it three times. Good. You get about nine pages into it. And you wonder, I've not comprehended a word of this. Yep. <laughs> and, and I, you, you said it better than I did because that's really what I'm trying to, to do. At a certain point, you know, you need to sit down with somebody and say, "Here's the best approach." So I would hand them one piece of paper and say, "Come back and give me the this information. Follow this format, this outline, whatever you want to call it." And and you know, and and if you try and work hard to get it down, you know, as we all know, it takes practice. Um, you're going to be better off because the the business books and the textbooks, it's hard. Yeah, it, cer it certainly is. I twenty years ago, actually a little over twenty years ago, I finished my MBA program at Duquesne University. My concentration was human resource management. My goal at the time was to become a trained development director for a Fortune 100. I quickly veered into entrepreneurship, 
But I'll tell you a couple things that stand out from my experience there. Uh, first of all, like many MBA programs, and I don't mean this is necessarily a criticism, it's just what it was, and it may have evolved since then. My impression of it is that it depended heavily on the companies that steered their students toward MBA programs and paid for their MBAs exchange in exchange for that period of indentured servitude. <laughs> it was pretty clearly meant to develop managers and executives to work at certain companies. And you could almost tell who the corporate sponsors were because they were the ones that all the positive case studies were about. When you had the manufactured class discussions, it was always these companies that get it yeah. right. Yep. And I, huh, they used to, they used to extol free markets and I laughed when Ariba bought them out. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> in fact, I, in fact, I have a story about, that one, I saw it coming. I was a I was a temp at free market, so I saw some things on the inside of that company that told me it wouldn't be there in five years anyway. And this was during my first semester as an MBA student and the analytical skills I'd already acquired. I looked at that and just working literally working in the mailroom there for a few weeks, I saw enough that I knew in five years this company was either not going to be there or was going to be bought out by a competitor. So yeah. fast forward to uh, Mr. Murren's uh, class on the environment of business that I mentioned in the Groundhog book. And in addition to having members of the class do 20-minute presentations every week, he also had guest speakers almost every week. So one week, he had the human resource director from a company called Ariba, A-R-I-B-A. And then the next week, he had, well, it was the same thing, but they had some grandiose title from free markets. And I don't care saying their names out loud because one of them no longer exists, which is my point. Uh, the, Ariba, the Ariba guy... Uh, he was sharp and focused and uh, had a lot to say about contemporary innovations in corporate culture, was actually talking about millennials in the year 2001, which wow. is kind of early to be talking about yeah. millennials. Yeah. Uh, so because uh, they were they were at that point, a lot of them were still in college, but they were already thinking ahead to millennials, uh, was really great with answering student questions, great innovating presentation. Fantastic. Next week, the free markets guy comes in. You can tell the guy has taken about seven hits off the bong, and he, <laughs> spend, he, spend, he spends the first and he spends the first five minutes saying explaining that he doesn't call himself a human resource director because then he'll get hit up for a membership in Sherm, and then he just blasts Sherm for five minutes, and he rambles on mostly about himself. Wow. And I'm thinking, okay, in five years, Ariba is going to buy free markets, and son of a gun, what happened? They did it. <laughs> yep. Now, some of the things I saw during my time on the inside there uh, had to do with communication, which is one of the three things that we're going to cover here today, critical thinking, communication, and execution. So right. I'm not going to go any further than that. But again, here's see what I did is I kind of took the Jim Rowe approach a little bit is rather than explain that some companies simply have cultures that reek from the head down. And you can almost see the writing on the wall, which ones are going to succeed and which ones are going to fail based on that. I told a story about it based on my own experiences. Uh, now, what I want to get into is those three things. This is actually why I wanted to have you here. Critical thinking, communication, and execution. And I believe that those actually work in that basic sequential order. But first of all, let's get into what do you see are some of the challenges with encouraging, inspiring, and developing critical thinking in organizations. I believe that's sorely lacking across the board, even to this day. Well, uh, I agree with you 100%. And it starts with, uh, let's just take a step back to the education world for a moment, is we don't really teach people to think, you know, and we, uh -huh. you know, often don't teach people to communicate. So, um, you know, they go through school and we all, because we can speak and we can write and that kind of thing, it seems to be a, um, uh, and I'm not saying I took any great courses in it, but when you get out of school and you start working, you realize how important that is. So I think the first thing is we don't teach them to sort of the, the process of critical thinking. The second is 
there's not a lot of practice. You know, you're not really doing a lot. And I think, you know, everybody says, well, is technology part of it? I think it's part of it because we have to, um, it's become very casual to email or text. Um, and I think the other thing is, is that the, um, you know, the, the, the companies ask the or, uh, education world, the academic world for hard skills and they've jumped over the soft skills. So that's, that's kind of a, a part of it. But in terms of communication, I think, how do we get them to do it? I really think it comes down to you need to, um, I, I use a phrase and I've been using it for a while uh, called to write is to think. I think the best way, you know, everybody, we all agree that you need to read. It broadens the mind and all those things. But reading is kind of passive, isn't it? You know, you somebody else has done all the hard work. You read it and then maybe you reflect, maybe remember a couple of things. But it, it, it's when you have to write, that's where the rubber meets the road. So part of, to me, the process of critical thinking is twofold. One is let's you know understand the process and the structure of critical thinking. But while you're going through it, you need to to write it down and draw you know find out what your findings are in in the analysis that you do and then from those findings think about what kind of conclusions you do and then even the implications from those conclusions okay if this works it's going to happen this way if it doesn't we're going to have to make changes I, you know set objectives so it's a real simple process which is why i focused on it on on the book that way is to try and you know integrate the concept of writing the uh, to structure your thinking. Yeah, it pains me how folks are not prepared through our educational system to engage in critical thinking. It's about cramming and regurgitation, throwing up data, which is actually a pretty ma- apt metaphor, in my personal opinion. And we'll be tied you if you don't have the quote unquote right answer. You hit the nail on the head, and yeah. and and it's all about memorization versus problem solving. I, I've, um, you know, it's just one of those things you realize, and you know, you have to, like you just said, you go through all these this big long thirty pages of condensed type, and you're supposed to remember that as opposed to here's a problem. How would you think through it? Yeah, and then we also add on hierarchical cultures and organizational structures where whether an answer is correct depends on whether it agrees with somebody with a certain title and what they think. I've seen that one before too. I've actually had that one said right to my face. And then they wondered why I printed out my job description. Yes. And I believe it's in the second book. I have a phrase that says it it all depends upon who's got the the biggest beak in the room, you know, because so much of it is. And and even when I do, um, I've done a lot of uh, I've I've been in a lot of focus groups, but in terms of being a client or an agency guy, but I ended up moderating them. I've probably done, you know, 50 to 75 moderation of groups. And the issue with focus groups is there's always one person in the room who starts talking too much and everybody follows them. So what I do in focus groups is I don't let anybody talk as the moderator. I say, we're going to show you this, but first I'm going to hand you out this form. I want you to everybody write down your thoughts and I give them a rating and a ranking and, and some uh, you know open-ended questions. And then when it's finished, I ask them all to talk and read what they wrote down because that one person can make a big difference. When I think of meetings, I think particularly focus group type meetings, I think of two things. There are those who will take five minutes to ask ask a one-sentence question. And there are those who will ask questions to which everybody already knows the answer just so they can be seen as earning participation points. And again, I think that goes back to some of the mistakes and some of the patterns in our educational system to get in the way here. That it's true. I also think to a certain degree in those situations, it comes down to personalities and ego. And if you're, uh-huh. you know, if you're confident in yourself, it's okay to, um, you know, let, let the junior people take it or, um, you know, let them have the credit for it. And it's okay to say, Oh, you know what? I'm wrong. Um, and even to this day, I still get amazed at people who can't do that. Well, I think there's also a need for structure when it comes particularly to focus groups and masterminds, which have certain similarities as I see it, because they're both about innovation. Ultimately, I have seen 
cases where, as I just as I described, you'll have a few folks who monopolize the conversation, and I will be the one that puts in pattern interrupts. For example, I was on a work group a few years ago that was involved in planning a conference, and somebody came around to me, and this was a this was a uh, it was a teleconference, uh, tell us like a, like a telecall, whatever, whatever we used to call them, bridge lines, whatever. And okay. uh, they and they came around to me and had this long winded question that had a five minute ramp up and a three minute uh, lead up to the point. And then I gave the answer. And then when they finally got done speaking, which I'd already had, I knew what they were going to ask about two minutes into their four minute question. And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> just no that's it right yeah and uh it's like what and a similar thing happened another time and i gave the answer yes okay i don't need to regurgitate back what either no or yes mean in the fur in the former they were asking for my opinion of whether something was worth doing and i said no and on the other they were asking if they understood something they were asking of me and i said yes I don't need to elaborate on that. And then the other piece, and I see this a lot, is when you go around the room at the end of the meeting and ask if anybody has anything left to add, and you have the folks who will spend five or six minutes explaining how they have nothing to add. <laughs> and, again, yeah. and again, and again, my usual answer is, nope, good. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> I so, agree. So I believe, personally, that what I just described are hindrances to, in some ways, all three of those things, critical thinking, communication, and execution. Because I see critical thinking subverted or set aside in exchange for brownie participation points. Communication is shoved into a formulaic box that has a right and a wrong answer, which really I don't think should be the case when it comes to focus groups or masterminds. And then execution, we never get to execution because now you have to have a meeting about the meeting to plan the next meeting. Right. Right. Because you didn't get anywhere in this meeting. Well, I, I, you know, I'm glad you said that about execution because that when I finished the first book, which was much more about you know the ten steps of a basic briefing document that helps you think and communicate it well, and then I came up with all these other ideas, and that's where in the adapter method, that's what the T stands for, tackle, uh, yep. which is execution and having. You know, you can't be a, a marketing guy and certainly not an agency person and not understand the value and the importance of education. In fact, at one point, you know, I said that, uh, you know, if you if they buy into your strategy and your creative, uh, it's a it's, you know, click glasses. Great. But don't screw up the educate uh, the execution of it because um, that's almost worse. If they love the strategy, and you screwed up the that's a big screw up, right? So um, I actually and have having to do that so many times. A lot of these things, Adam, are not hard. They're not. They're they're you know sort of standard operating procedure processes, but too few people use them. You know, I I give examples of you know here's a very simple project management thing, but. You know, every year I felt like I was meeting with a new client and having to explain, well, why don't we lay it out this way? So it's um, there's a lot of skills. I think as time goes on and you get to be an old guy like me, you start realizing, um, you know, as much as some of these things were developed a long time ago, they're not being used. And so what I'm trying to do is put it into a, a simple, practical teaching tool. Yeah, I I'm totally with you on that. So. I also love your use of acronyms. So you have the adapter method, A-D-A-P-T-E-R. Right. Yeah. Just as a way of enticing our folks to dig deeper into this, can you briefly tell us what that stands for? Yes, I would love to. Yes. Um, uh, and it came from my, you know, I would, if somebody said, what do you do? I'd say marketing, but I'm a strategic you know, marketing branding guy, and you have to start at the beginning. So what the adapter method stands for is analyze, which is get all the data you can. And if you don't have data, sit down with a smart group of people and work out a SWOT analysis. Uh, D means to deduce because you got to first pull all the data together and then you need to look at it and figure out what your findings, conclusions, and implications are and you lay out your strategy. So then 
the next part, A, which is really what book one is all about, which is author it. And that's where the writing and thinking comes in. And to get it down to condensed, I mean, you know, in the old days before PowerPoints, I was doing three ring binders and yeah. reading reading to a group of people. Even I was in the days of acetate, so with the overhead. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, adapter, is, I mean, author is, you know, get it down, whether you're writing or whatever. The next one, and I call it P stands for perform as opposed to present. That was obviously my first thought, because I mean, I've I can't even tell you how many times I presented as a marketing person, as an agency owner. um, I'm presenting all the time and I've been doing it since I was young. And so I don't like to you're not dog and pony show, but you do need to demonstrate that you're comfortable on your feet. You need to be able to uh, create a totally the same message in a totally different format. I mean, some people say, oh, I think Jeff Bezos has said, uh, you know, we shouldn't use PowerPoints anymore. Let's, but you can't go into a new business meeting and and say, okay, here's, here's a word document, read it for 30 minutes. You need to, you need to kind of wow them. They need to like you. And if you can stand up there and present and um, get your points across well, Make sure you listen to everybody who asks you a question and their responses. Look in their eyes. Uh, there's all these little little nuances that you need to do, and your your presentation has to be good. I try and keep my the words on a slide down to a few few words. I mean, slides right. down to a few words. It's very important. So that so that's perform, and then tackle is execution. Uh, and the last two are pretty simple. It's evaluate and refine because. The adapter method, as is business, is a cycle. You know, I've I've gone through uh, a bunch of them, 45 at this point. You you get a project, you analyze it, you move it through, and then when it's over, you do the first pass. You say, okay, how did it work? What do we need to do to refine it? Exactly. I'm totally with you there. So I appreciate you sharing that entire method with us. I think that's fantastic. And I want to see – I want to circle back to something here because you – mention in the notes he gave me in the green room here that there's a flaw in the educational process when it comes to communication. And I've alluded to that myself. And why do you think that, uh, what do you think it is and why is it not being addressed adequately? Because I really think in my estimation, having looked at some of your materials beforehand and being familiar with some of these issues, it does come back to how our students are educated or not. Right. And, and I think it's so weird because when, when I grew up, you had to do composition and you do essays. I went to all uh-huh. Catholic schools. So they were very focused on the writing aspect of things. And oh, yeah. Um, and when I went to, uh, I was a you know Fairfield Jesuit school. I remember uh, you had to know your arguments. You need to have to lay out your point of view. And I remember there was a, a, a priest there named uh, C. We called him C. D. Burns because he never gave out anything but C's and D's. And uh-huh. I remember getting a B my a B plus or something and going, oh my god, I'm I'm thrilled. So. I just don't think they do it anymore. And if you look at those, you know, I rambled in the beginning, but that nation's report card, they, they're not, the writing skills aren't good. They don't teach people the, the critical thinking and problem solving method. That's one. And the second part is they don't make them practice. Um, there was one study that said 50% of college grads indicated that they had only five classes. Now, if you take five per, per uh, semester, that's uh, 40 classes. So only five classes that asked them to do more than 20 pages of writing. So it, it's like, you know, wow. Tiger Woods and I are both golfers. I'm an awful golfer, but he still has to practice and he still makes mistakes. I mean, every time I write something, I've been writing for 45 years. I need to edit it. I need to look at it. I think about it. And so they're not practicing. How are you going to get good at it? Less than less than 20 pages. Is that what you said? I what I, the the research in, in summary said that 50% of the students indicated in the they only had five classes that they had to write more than 20 pages during that that class's tenure. I mean that's nothing. <laughs> when I was in co- when I was in college granted I was in a liberal arts curriculum but if I had the five classes that semester and I got away with only having to write 20 pages for each of them that was something. Well exactly. And I think we've you know, we've relied on, and I'm, I'm a, I love what we have today with technology. It's, it's cool. It makes my life and a marketing life much more ability to, to measure things, which is what it's all about. But 
it, it, when it got to education, I think there's some you know great things about it, but I think they're skipping over you know the, these in the pay scale study and some of these other study. It's the the two things that are the most important skills are and you said it uh, shrum right is that the society for hr uh, professional or managers sure. or something yeah, sure yes. society I, for human resource management that's it. i belong that's to it. it yeah and oh, i belong to it for a while actually and it was a good organization and it, it seems to be great and they had a study that that indicated that the top that a lot of the managers they spoke to they would rather um, they would rather the student have good critical thinking, problem solving, and communication skills more than the hard skills, uh, because you can get some, you can train somebody how to code or how to do this or how to use Microsoft uh, package, um, but the ability to train them because it takes so much time to problem solve and write, um, that's what they're looking for more now. So, and and the another article said that the the uh, educators are frustrated because the companies, like you said in the beginning. They come in and they're sponsoring. This is what we want you to, um, uh, we need you to give us students with these kind of skills. Well, they jumped over. Uh, so we're all, you know, we're all culpable. So, so my goal is let's try and fix it. Let's not blame anybody. Yeah, I'm all for that. I'm certainly all for that. And, you know, I mean, this is to me such a straightforward subject. Uh, now, I made, made, mentioned something earlier, and I wanted to see if there's anything else we need to cover on this, because I believe it is the bane of existence in the corporate world and even in some entrepreneurial structures. Remember when I said that uh, meetings often, you can tell when a meeting failed is because then you have to have a meeting to debrief the meeting and then discuss the feasibility of whether it needs to have another meeting, after oh, which you have to have a meeting to plan that meeting? Yeah. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Are people, uh, are people having meetings just to take up time during the day? Well, I think they're, they're, they're being poorly managed and structured. So yeah. as an example, I've only been out with this book uh, three weeks, maybe today. And um, I've had several friends of mine that are, I'm a marketing guy. I got to know a lot of sales VPs and I've had two different sales guys call me up and say, I love the concept. I bought the book. And you think this can help me um, with my team? Because I got to tell you, I walk into a meeting and nobody has an agenda. <laughs> you know, there wow. is an agenda for the meeting. And these are these aren't, you know, we I I, I position it as let's help the young people because I have research on that. But this isn't only the young people. You I can't tell you that man, I spend my life going in out of meetings. And um, there's a lot of people that don't have a meeting. When I have a meeting that's a formal meeting, usually my current client, once a week on Fridays we meet, I I'm presenting him a PowerPoint. So here's the agenda today. Here's what I want to accomplish. We go through it step by step. Um, he's not a great communicator. He's a very bright guy. He's a wonderful man. I love what we're doing, but um, he's not a communicator. But if I go back and go through the process and lay it out, it's a very fast, easy meeting because I don't want to waste my time. He doesn't want to waste his time, but nobody yeah. does. Nobody does that anymore. I shouldn't say right. nobody. Uh, it's a lost start in some respects. And it, it's not. See, Adam, to me, the, the reason why I even put all of this in a fable, it's not that hard to fix. It's just not that hard to fix. Communication is the oil that lubricates an organization. And if they buy into that, that's important. And they buy into the, th the thought that to write is to think and follow. I mean, I hate to say, you know, everybody wants to sell a book and that'll get you coaching skills. I'm not looking to do coaching. I just want people right. to, I want people to lay out this process and, and follow, you know, I'll call it the you know, the get your ducks in a row culture. And if everybody said, okay, now from today on, when we have a major thing, you don't walk into a meeting unless you know what the objective is or what the purpose of the meeting is and what is our agenda. This stuff makes life easier. You know, if everybody saved two hours a week in, in fixing communication problems, that's a corporation getting a 5% increase in productivity. That would be huge. Yeah. Well, as far as meetings, I actually have a structure that I've developed, and it has to do with how you identify the people who are in the room. And I basically break them into four categories. You have your leader or facilitator or facilitators, and that could be two people. But usually it's one. And this is the and this is the person or persons who set the agenda and manage the and manage the whole thing. Then you have the participants. 
These are folks who typically will represent departments or represent projects or represent initiatives. These are the folks who have something to report back. Now, going along with your participant, you have the third group, which are the seconds. And the second is somebody who attends with the participant. The second usually has little or nothing to say because their job is not to speak. Their job is to observe. And to take notes. Yeah, to take notes, to be the eyes and ears and the briefing partner for their paired participants. I like that. And also, if the participant can't make it because the second is there along with the participant, they are recognized as having the authority and the gravita to speak on behalf of that participant for that week. So So we have our... We have our facilitators, we have our participants, and we have our seconds. And then you have the observers. These are the people who are just there to be in the loop and hear from the horse's mouth. They don't necessarily have to say anything. Yeah. So when you go so when you go around the room to make sure everybody's included and call on each person individually, this is where you get people asking questions to which everybody already knows the answer cuz they had nothing to begin with. They were there for reasons it could include I want to hear it directly from the horse's mouth and not through a memo or I just want to raise my own visibility by being in the room or, are, or it's going to impact them. So they not, they might as well listen in, yeah. which actually, which actually is kind of my two points put together. Uh, yeah. 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 You see me here in the room it impacts me. So I'm right here yep. and I want to hear it from you directly and not do some memo that's subject to interpretation that can lead to miscommunication later. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what, this happens at, companies big and small. I mean, I think it happens, frankly, more often in the bigger companies. Uh, but, you know, even smaller companies, you'd think that they would, this would be easier. They should be more, you know, facile at this, but no, uh, it happens in, in both sizes. So it's, it, like I said, it's not hard. It just needs to become a priority. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one other thing, and this is something that I discovered a long time ago, I was, I was the president of a of the chat of the local chapter of a nationwide professional organization. I had already been on the board for three years, so I knew how the meetings worked. Theoretically, there was a meeting. I think it was every second Wednesday of the month. I think it was, and it was supposed to last for ninety minutes. Theoretically, but if they only lasted two hours, that was something. And it was the same people talking about the same stuff month after month after month after month. So when I came into the presidency, I immediately assigned them a task. Within 48 hours before the start of the meeting. I'm going to resign. Yeah. Every member of the board uh, needs to submit in writing to everybody else the, an email. And it doesn't have to be a dissertation. It can just be bullet points if you have whatever. That covers three things. What you're working on now, where you have questions or need support. And what innovations you have for the chapter. Those three things. That's great. With the idea that everybody would read it in advance and be prepared to share insights on the questions and offer the support and discuss the innovations. And we didn't have to sit there listening for listening to 20 minutes of everybody rambling on about uh, the puff pieces of what they're doing. It's like it's a professional organization. You probably don't have 20 minutes worth to talk about anyway. So. Four out of seven submitted their reports, and then as soon as I when we went through everybody who had submitted a report and gave them their turn, I you know I banged uh, my hand on the uh, table, gavel like, and I said, <laughs> "Awesome meeting, guys. We'll see you next month." And that and left so, three, and that left three people out. And yeah, I said, "Look, look, I asked I asked you for this, and uh, and by the way, you said you didn't want to do it, so I just have to assume that somehow eight 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 days into this term." You have everything so well handled in your departments, you don't really need us. So I didn't want to take up the time because we all have families. Well, I knew this where this was going. I just didn't know yep. what the number would be. So three out of seven well, failed. Well, <laughs> well uh, from that point forward, what would happen is they would trip each o- over each other to compete to see who could submit <laughs> who the report first, first <laughs> who could submit the best report. Uh, they yeah. would sometimes speak with each other so they could coordinate their reports, and uh, and uh, and then and then and then it got to the point where they were asking me to pre-approve their reports. I said, "No, no, we don't have to go that far." And again, yeah. all this needs to be as bullet points. And right. then the person who at first said, "I ain't doing that reports." Started started writing term papers. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to show and what, us. And what, and what it really came down to is 
I was able to show them, and this was really my goal, to show them that this is how we made sure that everybody's voice was heard. I think that's terrific. That was, yeah. that was, my, that was my bottom line on this. It wasn't about giving them work to do or restricting them anyway. It was actually acknowledging that some folks may not have a lot to say or may feel like they were having their energy sapped out by listening to blah, 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 blah. And by the time we finally get to them, they just say, up oh, nothing because they're so tired. And also making the meetings more valuable. If we're speaking about problem solving and innovation, rather than listening to rote reports, does that sound like a more fun meeting to you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I yeah. want the meetings to be fun. Yeah, that's great. You know, the one thing I, I failed to mention when I was talking about education that I, I if you don't mind me making a plug for this, I'm giving a dollar away to for every book sold to yeah. the nationalwritersproject.org, nwp.org. Um, I found them a couple of years ago because I felt this is that important. I want to, you don't make a ton of money, as you know, when you're selling books for nine dollars Oh, I know it. <laughs> so, but I thought, you know what? Uh, let me see whether this organization um, is worth it. They're out of uh, California. And the woman who runs it, uh, Tanya Baker, is a great lady. And I've been talking to her a few years. And I think she thought I wasn't going to finish because I think I started and I first introduced myself in 2017, 2018. And um, I sent her a note the other day. We finally got going. So at the end of the month, I'm going to be giving you some money. And But they, they are an organization that focuses on teachers, teaching teachers to teach writing. And they've been doing it. They've got like 189 chapters around the country. They meet in the summer on college campuses and they um, they meet with teachers and they all share. How are we doing about teaching our children to write better and what kind of techniques can we use? And then they've they've actually it's been around for 20, 25 years, the uh, the uh, organization. And then they've done some, and this was important to me, is they've done some uh, research that demonstrates they've paralleled schools and the, the schools that have um, kids that are uh, been taught through this system are performing better in writing skills than those who haven't, which makes sense. So I, I just... You know, like this needs to start at that age. And it goes from they, their point is it goes from grades K through 16. You know, they they're teaching college. That, and so to me, this is a component of that whole process. And I think it's a worthy cause. And I just wanted your listeners to know. Yeah, well, I think that's a great way for us to wrap up, wrap up, actually, because we are near the top of the hour. So first of all, I do really appreciate you sharing about the holistic mission of Get your ducks in a row, and yes, I want to make. And I want to make. Go ahead. I was just going to say it's R O W E, and right now Amazon takes a while to uh, get it up, so you have to actually put in "get your ducks in a row" with E, and then I add my name to it, and that's when it pops up. It hasn't come up naturally yet because there's a lot of "get your ducks in a row" without any books, and it doesn't pop up there. Why well, no fast way to get there? If somebody goes to www.jimrowmarketing.com and clicks on books in the menu. Well, that was my next point. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're a good save. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I decided to uh, just finish the website uh, about a month or so ago. I Well, the day that we launched the books and um, I split it to, you know, half of um, uh, the, the agency business uh, and then half being the book because that's really, you know, my agency world experience is what gives me the, you know, sort of the experience to be able to talk about the communication side of things. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. And fantastic. And I just want to encourage everybody, of course, to visit that website, uh, www.jimrowmarketing.com, particularly those who are finding themselves in a place where they want to discover more about a holistic approach to critical thinking, communication, and execution. I'm certainly going to pick up a copy of the book myself and the new book when it comes out in a couple months. Oh, that's great. I appreciate the uh, support. And I, I'm uh, very, very thankful that you had me on. Absolutely. And I want to uh, express my appreciation to you, Jim Rowe. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Cool. Thanks. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time. 
Have a great day. Take care.